Welcome to Burrows and Burbs with hosts John Ingle and Roberto Cabrera. Over the next hour, you're going to learn some insider knowledge that will help you overcome and strategize in the cutthroat world of real estate. Now, here are your hosts, John and Roberto. Welcome, everybody. Welcome, Burrows and Burbs, Season 4, Episode 124. I'm your host, John Engel, from New Canaan, Connecticut, right outside New York City. And that's my co-host. I'm Roberto Cabrera on the Upper West Side of Manhattan. I work for Brown Harris Stevens, and we're excited to be in London. 78th Street? Stop. (laughs) I never get that right. Okay. Center of the universe, Manhattan, New York. Today, we have Laura Dam Vienna and Ed Hopkinson Woolley from Knight Frank. Now, Roberto, let's start with the fact that I guess it was a year ago you said, oh, the wealth report. I love the wealth report. Do you know those people? And I was like, I know those people. I just went whale watching with Patty Drink. Of course, I know those people. Can we do some shows with the Knight Frank people? Why, yes, we won't do just one show. We'll do three shows. We'll start with Paris, then we'll do London, and then we'll uh, finish up in March with the Wealth Report. So the new Wealth Report's coming out in March. Can't wait. So this is part of the great big three-month buildup toward the Wealth Report. Everybody is eagerly anticipating. So before I begin, let me pull up my share screen and say... There we go. That's the wealth report. That's the 2023 report. You can get that at nightfrank.com. Download wealth report with insights about luxury markets throughout the world. Before we begin, I just want to thank our sponsor, Grace Farms. And this is the page at sharegracefarms.com where you can find out about their sips, which is the uh, tea and their line of coffees, which is the drips, so sips and drips. And I want to remind you that on March 26th, they're gonna have a big summit uh, to benefit the Design for Freedom Initiative to try and eradicate forced labor in the building trades. And without any further ado, I just wanna, let's say, unshare screen and welcome Ed and Laura. Say hello. Thank you very much, John. Cheers, Roberto. Very excited to have you guys. I know that when I I reach out to uh, Jason Mansfield in the London office and I say, give me two experts uh, who can talk to me about uh, Hyde Park and and the Battersea Power Station. They said, these are my two aces I've got. Let's see. Let me pull up Laura. I'm going to pull up your screen. So you are a partner and head of Hyde Park Sales. And I guess you'll tell us in a moment what that means, Hyde Park Sales. And this is Ed Hopkinson Woolley, the senior sales negotiator in their global headquarters in London. So um, can we begin, I guess, with the map of London and talk to us about the market you cover in particular? Are we talking about all of London? Are we talking about West London? And what does it mean to be in the West London? I think, John, we could be here all day talking about the whole of London. It's so expansive. But to keep things kind of to a specific area, let's let's focus in on Hyde Park, where Laura has her expertise and where also most of London's high-end development is happening. 
Um, we've got some incredible schemes running around the peripheries of the park. Some of the stuff where uh, you look at one Hyde Park developed by the Candy Brothers a number of years ago, still one of London's main uh, high-end residencies. So we look at that and drift out west where we see a huge pipeline of development happening. That's probably the best place to start. And I'll, I'll let Laura touch on Hyde Park and just going around the park and showing you the different areas first. Yeah, so my office sits uh, right in the middle of, let's say, Notting Hill and Marylebone. So it's just the area north of Hyde Park. And our local, local transport station would be um, Paddington. So we've got really easy access to Heathrow Express. We've just had the recent opening of the Elizabeth Line, which allows you to access from Paddington to the city, um, access within 13 minutes. So it's become really commutable. Um, and it's an area which essentially people love living because you are always within really close walking distance to the best parts of Hyde Park. So you've got the Italian fountains, Kensington Palace Gardens, um, and you're also really well positioned for access into the West End, so Mayfair, or you could be walking over to Portobello, which I know our US clients love. So, um, you know, it's a really well positioned area and I run the sales team there. We're, we're five people. Um, and we essentially are selling properties from anywhere from about half a million up to 30, 40 million. All right. And so uh, any of these, do you want to talk about, shall we, shall we look at any of these in particular? I mean, Holland Park. Let's see, if I pull up Holland Park, that looks like uh, new development, is it? Yeah, stunning series of villas across just up from... Uh, just up off Holland Park itself with views across it. Um, again, basically London is uh, built around the parks. We've got so much greenery. We're lucky a bit like you with Central Park. We've got Hyde Park. We've got the river itself as well. So a lot of these developments are situated either around the park, in the core areas like Mayfair. And for instance, Belgravia, Chelsea Barracks, another scheme that's been going up over a number of years with multiple phases. Um, with outstanding amenities, the townhouses there, like, they are just breathtaking. So for any of your viewers who are listening for your podcast, they're going to want to open up the YouTube channels and uh, have a look at these uh, on the screen because, yeah, some of the interiors that are being designed there, uh, they are world class. And uh, that's what we'll see across most of the schemes we cover. Are those can I ask you? Can I ask you just by looking at this? Is there is there just looking at the architecture? Is there a certain are there certain standards of conformity that have to happen within these these neighborhoods? Like this is I modern, think. yet it does have a, it has you know it has an essence of of something that's older. Yeah. So typically they'll have to uh, the the planning process in the UK is quite an interesting one. I'm not going to go into detail because that's again another few days worth of chat. Um, but People often, for instance, what you've got there, Harcourt House and Edwardian structure, grade two listed, what they do is they retain that front of the property to give you that historic traditional feel. And we've got a few schemes that are selling really well because of that. They bring that modern approach with the amenities, the finishes that you want from a new build, but also have that kind of uh, nod the head towards the historic part of what London is and what London will remain. People have such ties to that historic traditional architecture, the Victorian Edwardian Regency era. As you, you can see here in Lancer Square, they've kind of refashioned that architectural design on the typical Georgian house with your high ceilings on the first floor and then slightly lower as you go up into the building. So it's just, so it's kind of fitting into the area that it sits in. Exactly. 
I'm wondering yeah. when I see these, I see Chelsea, I see Knightsbridge, I see I see Paddington, I see Mar Marleybone. Is that what it's called? Marleybone? Marleybone. Marleybone, yeah. I knew I'd get that right. <laughs> Watch that. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, so if I come back to the map of London, um, are all of these equal or are some of these more traditional, quiet, hip? Uh, I mean, so, you know, what, 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 talk to me about neighborhoods before we get into specific projects. I think the amazing thing about London is it's like a selection of little villages. As you go, if you were to look clockwise around Hyde Park there, you know, yes, we've just mentioned Marlebone. Um, that's been a real emerging market over the last decade with this you know, Marlebone High Street running through the heart of it with lots of boutique shops and cafes, great world class restaurants. Um, and, you know, Chilton Firehouse moving in, which became a really popular location um, for celebrities, etc. So, you know, it's sort of become a bit of an extension to the well-established Mayfair area, which, you know, very traditional, very popular with international buyers. And again, world-class selection of hotels, bars, restaurants in that area and some of London's most expensive properties and, and best new homes developments. Um, and then you sort of follow it clockwise round to where it says Westminster there, but you're really going into kind of Belgravia, Knightsbridge. Um, and that sort of follows a similar vibe in a way to Mayfair. Um, you know, top designer shops, high streets, you know, all of this still within really easy access of the parks as well, because you've got St. James's, you've got Buckingham Palace, Green Park all around there. Um, and then coming over west, you're kind of going into that Chelsea market, historically very kind of aristocratic market, but again, very popular these days with celebrities. But you're, you're starting to move into a more kind of family market where you can get big houses with gardens. And that sort of continues up into Kensington and Notting Hill. And those markets have been incredibly popular during and post pandemic because they will offer that those areas will offer some really substantial family houses with big gardens and kind of reaching the, you know, that kind of typical pandemic desire to, to have your long-term home, your safe place, your garden, outdoor space. Um, and those markets really tapped into delivering the supply for that demand. And then you come back up a little bit further around to the north and you're back in Hyde Park. So can I ask you something? So uh, we were talking and we were looking at new construction earlier. And in these neighborhoods, I'm assuming, assuming they're so mature in the fact that they've been there for so many years. And I would imagine that finding the land to do new construction is very challenging. And is there resistance, like here, sometimes there's resistance to, there's a pre-existing structure that's there that people don't want to take down. Do you have those challenges? All the time, um, multiple schemes. We've got a few that are still very much in planning. We'll see them come to the market in two, three years time. But it's such a drawn out process here in the UK. But when things do come to light, for instance, we've had an incredibly successful scheme up at King's Cross. A number of buildings are, are now totally complete. The last building, Capella, is almost finished and we're almost totally sold out there. But the final phase will be the gas holders. So a historic landmark. If you've ever watched cricket at the Oval and seen the historic uh, gas holders, these large steel frames that used to hold the gas years and years ago, they're building penthouses and just unbelievable apartments within these structures. So there are ways around it to kind of, as again, give that uh, nod of the head to these um, old structures. Again, like you saw earlier, 8 Eaton Lane is a similar one. So that's the way of getting around these planning permissions and bringing that historical uh, structure into play and making it work for the developer. 
giving people a reason to go for it over something that is just a brand new fabricated building. Uh, you want that historical factor. So, yeah, it is a difficult process, but we've got so many schemes. You look at Battersea Power Station, which is, again, one of London's largest uh, power stations. What you brought up there, Powerhouse at Chelsea Waterfront, that was built in 1905. It originally had four chimneys, 275 foot up in the air. Uh, but Sir Terry Farrell, the architect there, um, he's redesigned it totally uh, to original red brick of the original structure, 200 new apartments. I think it's Europe's largest atrium of 100 meters long. And people will have uh, almost hotel style like amenities. There'll be a clubhouse, pool, gym, saunas. Uh, a restaurant on the ground floor, which you can see in that image, uh, but right on the, the waterfront in Chelsea. So these these homes are um, being created out of what was a very historical structure that was almost a cathedral of the industrial era. Um, and it's a great way of preserving that historic uh, skyline that we have here. And we're, we're very lucky to have in London. A million and a half dollars for uh something in a luxury building with water views it that sounds expensive i mean inexpensive uh what's the catch i guess when it comes to these things look you can say oh i'm, I'm going to be a riverside development which typically sometimes adds about 40 percent value to any sort of property um here it's space utilization you've got 200 apartments within this building this scheme is uh spread over eight and a half acres. This is technically phase two of a, of a number of different phases. Uh, phase one was hugely successful, which was uh, the taller glass tower known as uh, West Tower in uh, Chelsea Waterfront. And I guess it's just with the volume, these developers are able to be so competitive. But this is this seems to be driving the interest. We, we get so many inquiries every week from people of all different backgrounds, whether it be Europeans, investors from overseas, even domestic, which is probably the the area we've seen the most amount of interest come from domestic buyers, people who live in those old aristocratic Chelsea townhouses wanting to downsize but not leave that local area. So we see these guys downsizing from five, seven million pounds and selling up, releasing some equity and buying into a scheme such as this. So they have their pied de terre in uh, central London whilst having maybe a family home out in the countryside, which we saw during the pandemic. So it's a bolt hole. Yeah. Well, you're talking about four. You, you spoke about foreign buyers. I understand. I mean, it's not dissimilar to the U.S. where we have a lot of foreign buyers. I understand London, like the number of foreign buyers has almost doubled in the last handful of years. So and that there is a proposal to put a, some sort of tax on that. Is that likely to happen? I mean, that that comes with, you know, debatable results. Like I think in in Vancouver, they did it, and some people say it was successful, and some people say it was uh, it was horrific because it brought property values down in the sense that it makes it more affordable for the local domestic people, but for the foreigners, you know, it keeps them away. And yet, it's a you know, you're generating money, yet you're de depressing property value, and vice versa. What's the argument, and how's that playing? How's that playing out there? I think if you look back at the last eight years in London, we've seen stamp duty reforms have a real impact on pricing. I'm looking back at, you know, probably eight years ago when we saw the most significant stamp duty reforms. And actually, a lot of that has been priced into the market alongside lots of other challenges that the London market has faced over the last few years. Um, and I think, you know, right now there's a lot of talk about tax. We've got an upcoming election. 
you know, there will be lots of discussions over what happens next as these manifestos come out towards towards the election. Um, you know, I, I just think, though, that actually what's shown is that the London market has just been so resilient every time we've been hit with another thing like this. And what it shows us is that people are not choosing London. They're not choosing to buy in London just based on tax decisions. They're not selling just based on tax decisions. I actually think that, you know, this is a, a long term home for people. They're looking into the cultural history, the education, the reasons to live in London, are, are, you know, a vast financial centre, etc. And I think that, you know, the tax comes with it. Yes, but it has its benefits on other locations. Yeah. When you put it in the wider context. It's, it's an interesting one, Roberto. On that, obviously, we we have seen interest rates and everything fluctuate over the past few years. And um, over the past 10 years, we've only seen the dollar get a little bit stronger compared to the pound. So some countries that are pegged against the dollar or uh, use the dollar, they've certainly seen even up to a 40% uh, kind of saving from what they might have been spending back in 2007. So where the, where it's one to two, whereas now we're talking one to 1.26. I don't know what it is today, but that's typically where we're trading at now. So if someone could have been purchasing at 8.4 million back in 2010. It's costing them 4.3 million US dollars today. So there's an increase in savings from in terms of exchange rates. But as, as Laura quite rightly mentioned, educational facilities, uh, ties to London. I was chatting with our international project sales team who are prevalent over our 50 different territories that we cover. And they said, look, wherever we go, whether it be uh, Turkey or across the Asia Pac region, Australia, Sydney, we're, we're saying um, that people have these ties to London. They'll always buy in London, not necessarily because they have family here, but because they might have a son or a child who's uh, going to be going to university in the future. They're banking on it, potentially being in London. The educational facilities around here are, are phenomenal. Uh, Europeans, likewise, they come here for Lycée Francais, which is a, a West London French school, and, and it's highly regarded globally. So we see people go to these areas specifically for those educational facilities, knowing that London has been a safe haven over the past uh, few years, especially what the UK has gone through. So Brexit in the grand scheme is the effect was an effect and it's come back, it's kind of rebounded. Is that a bad word? Are we allowed to say Brexit? Is that, is that still controversial or have we moved you have on? You to edit that out, John, later. You're going to have to put a blooper over it. Um, yeah, I think unfortunately for us, I think Brexit has been amongst many factors, as I mentioned a minute ago. I think, you know, it's just been one other thing alongside stamp duty reforms. Then we've had Brexit and it was the pandemic. And then, you know, stock markets post um, Ukraine, it, there's just been one thing after another that has affected people's sentiment in the market. Um, That's what I was thinking is it's really the sentiment, it's, it's the sentiment sort of, kind of deflates yeah. and then now you're, you're kind of getting your breath back and it's, you know, it is what it is. This is an yeah, interesting kind of chart. It shows a little bit of a, a of a dip during the pandemic, not too much. And I, and I assume that the one before that, 2016, was that a result of maybe the Brexit, uh, any, you know, uh, anxiety over Brexit? But it looks exactly. like we're now poised to go uh, uh, for five straight years of growth projected. Um, is, this yeah. a, is this an accurate uh, assessment of the uh, current mood? Well, we've already seen, uh, so this past January, we've already seen 0.7% uh, increase in property values across the UK. 
we anticipate 3% by the end of the year. And then accumulatively over the next five years, probably about 18.1% across the UK market. So that's a really good sign. But we're at the moment, we're still seeing interest rates a bit like you guys in the US. We're seeing interest rates come down, probably see some cuts by the end of the year, hopefully. No one's got a crystal ball, so can't say it verbatim, but we're hopeful that that's what's happening. And Fingers crossed we continue to see inflation come off, which will only incentivize buyers more, especially for products such as new build and also just the, the general property market. And what is, I this, saw an, chart? What is this, what's this chart? What's the purple chart underneath? It says London, US. Is this the relative amounts of investment in London and where they're coming from or the investments made in those other markets? I imagine it's coming in. Uh-huh. Okay. And so it, it shows about $2 billion worth of U.S. So it looks like we're, we're the, the major, uh, I guess, investor in the London market. Would you say that that's still true, that the U.S. is still one of your most important uh, markets? Um, yeah, very customers? much so. I think, you know, this effective discount that Ed's just been talking about is really relevant here because not only have we seen the discounts on pricing, but that difference in cur currency has made such a big difference for US buyers in the UK market, um, you know, with effective discounts for around 40 to 50% um, in the last few years. Um, and I think, you know, that we, we are going to go on, I think, to talk a little bit more about the lettings market as well. But I actually think um, a stat that came out in our recent super prime lettings report was that I think it was around 30% of tenants in London at the super prime uh, level were coming in from the States. So, you know, there's definitely a lot of movement of money coming in um, at that kind of super prime luxury level um, from the US. We're sort of seeing that on the ground. Do you get a sense of where in the US these people are coming from? Are they coming from the East Coast primarily or are they? Um, yeah, latest one. I had a lovely um, referral actually through Jason, who you mentioned earlier, Jason Mansfield, who works in our, our US team here. Um, he's in touch with you guys and Douglas Elliman and Compass over there in the US. And they've kindly sent across a, a recently New Yorker looking at specific Notting Hill. It's a, it's a market the New Yorkers know. Um, it's got a lot of history um, and it's one that that they, they can appreciate and feel almost at home with, given how many people come across from that part um, of the US. So I'd say, yeah, more, more the East Coast at this point in time. But with other tech companies starting to open up large offices or HQs in uh, places like Paddington, Shoreditch, or uh, across King's Cross, we've suddenly seen uh, people at very high level, exec levels, buying into properties in these areas. So uh, it's happening quite a lot at this point in time. You know, we saw John, John showed that chart of the projected growth over the next couple of years. Is part of that, because I see that you guys are thinking about introducing a 25-year mortgages, something that you guys don't have. We have 30-year mortgages here. Yeah. But so what type of what's a what's a typical mortgage there now as far as term? Five years? Yeah, two two year fixed or five year fixed. Wow, that's a game changer. If you guys could do twenty-five years, that's gonna yeah. bring a lot lot of new buyers, especially I mean, especially more affordable buyers into the marketplace. Yeah. Exactly. And I think as look, as some of you guys have already discussed, people are typically purchasing their properties around that that 30 year mark in their lifetime and then they're paying off their mortgage even if they move a number of different times they're paying off that mortgage up until the age of 60. so it's one mortgage sticking with you for that long and you can move house you can uh, sell the property be free of your mortgage but 
that's one thing this country is starting to, to push towards. But we've seen lots of different mortgage products come about. Our finance team are absolutely incredible at speaking to our clients about coming up with different solutions. For instance, from the US, you can purchase with a 25% uh, deposit and have that 75% mortgage rate at the moment. So that's one of those things. And rates are coming down. So it's only good news, really, for, for anyone who's purchasing at this point in time for us. That's Roberto, how, let's let's talk, let's compare it with the New York market because I think that's where most of our audience is coming. You know, are in New York or interested in the New York market, and they're looking at second homes, and they and they get job transfers back and forth to London, uh, investment bankers, and they're like, talk to me about. Uh, let's make some parallels here. I mean, the top of the London market, those Chelsea townhouses, Chelsea barracks townhouses, and the like. Um, What's the equivalent, Roberto, in New York? Because we've been talking about the townhouse market in New York, and I believe that it's been on fire, right, for the last 10 years. There's no. High, no? No, no. It, it peaked probably 2015, 2016, and then they really started suffering. The air was coming out of the balloon until really COVID. When people started to feel that I need to control my own surroundings, I don't want to be in a building, I don't want to be in an elevator with all these different people, and it started to be a bit of a resurgence. So now it's come back quite a bit, but uh, the only thing that I can imagine that would be comparable at least to something like Mayfair or something like that would be like an Upper East Side townhouse that is you know, anywhere from eight to 10,000 square feet, a couple of blocks from the park that's selling for 20 to 40, 50, 60 million, um, and then... You know, you also have some really expensive houses downtown in the village. Um, and But these some of these houses are of different sizes, depending upon what era they were built, right? Um, so the houses well, the, along... Go ahead. So now just tell me what's the equivalent on the townhouse market, the upper end townhouse market in London? What are the prices on I can expect to spend on, on a townhouse in London? And how has that changed since COVID? I guess there's just so many different factors on pricing um, and each market is so different. So in the area where I'm based in Hyde Park, you can get some really good value. And this is what's been the draw to that Hyde Park Bayswater market in the W2 postcode north of Hyde Park. We've just um, had a sale of a um, 5,000 square foot house, which has actually just sold for just over 8 million. You know, that was representing such good value. It actually went to best bids and... Um, we had five parties interested and two parties really went to loggerheads over that and competed over um, getting the property and it sold above the asking price. But you can sort of see the value there. It's actually, um, you know, in comparison to Mayfair, for example, where you might be anywhere possibly between sort of three to four thousand pounds per square foot, at least actually for a house. So, um, you know, it just depends on location. It depends on the overall offering and condition, et cetera, as always. Um, but yeah, you could be probably from about five to 50 million, really. I appreciate you using price per square foot and not price per meter. Thank you. It's helping me out tremendously. <laughs> yeah, I need, to, I need to clear up a bit on my prices per square meter. <laughs> See, again, that sounded inexpensive. When you said five, five million to 50, I don't think we can get, you can't get a townhouse in New York for $5 million, can you, Roberto, anywhere? You can, you can, of course, yeah, you can. It just, it's going to be on a smaller size or it's going to be further away from the park or something like that. You can. Mm. Okay. You can. Okay. So what other trends? We... We... Go ahead. 
Go ahead. No, I was going to say the other really cool thing that we have in London is typically these old traditional Georgian Victorian townhouses would back onto stables and these little houses at the back, which were originally stables, have been converted into what we now call muse houses. Um, so you can typically pick up a, a, a sort of thousand to two thousand square foot house, sort of three bed. Um, they're really kind of quaint and pretty little streets. People have kind of, you know, decorated them up with their outside furniture and planting. Um, and you can kind of pick up a house like that for anywhere from about one and a half to four million typically across London. So, um, you know, the offering is actually quite wide in terms of freehold house availability. And, and that type of housing is, is sporadic throughout the city? I mean, you can yeah, find that... Well, Okay. Yeah. Any way that That's you have right. these traditional terraces, typically, you will probably find a muse behind it. Um, we were going to talk about uh, leasing a little bit, or letting, as you say. I find all these, you said best bids, we say best and final, all these different terminologies. <laughs> okay. um, do you, what percentage, do you know what percentage of your housing stock is rental property? That's a good question, and we definitely need to check in on that. Yeah, because I'm always fascinated because in New York, seventy percent of our housing stock is rental property, which is enormous. In most mm. cities, it's not as much. So I'm just curious because I and I, a lot of the reading that I was doing on your marketplaces, it's it's very, very similar to what's happening in New York. Um, the one thing I'm not curious, I'm curious about is your inventory. What is, what's happened to your inventory since like 2019, pre-COVID to now and pricing pre-COVID to now? From a lettings perspective, um, it's, it, is this from a lettings perspective? From both. However, I'm just both, curious. Yeah. Sure. Um, well, supply levels have been really challenging during that period since 2019. Um, demand has definitely outstripped supply. Um, having said that, expectations and the alignment of the two from buyers and sellers that, you know, there's been a gap. So it hasn't necessarily been constant flow of sales, despite of the gap of them on supply and demand. Um, but actually, and, and the let in amongst that, the lettings market has very much fluctuated in terms of supply levels. And I think a lot of that has come down to some sellers um, suddenly sort of finding themselves as accidental landlords. They're not getting the pricing that they would like to see achieved on their on their sale. And so they've opted rather than sitting there having a vacant property in London, they've decided to let it. So we've sort of seen quite a fluctuation of supply in the lettings markets where actually quite a few sellers have switched to becoming landlords. I think you guys covered it on one of your more recent podcasts, the one in, with Sydney. Um, I think you guys spoke very much about how um, purchasers may have bought a few years ago with low interest rates and a few years on, they're really struggling to pay those off. Uh, and their mortgage has suddenly gone up to five, seven percent. People are then obviously struggling to sell, but they can only sell at X without making a huge financial loss to themselves. So therefore, they are deciding, as Laura said, suddenly becoming these accidental landlords. Um, but in terms of going back to what percentage might be rental versus ownership, um, I reckon historically, us as a country, very much uh, London as a whole, is very uh, traditional that uh, a Londoner will own uh, a freehold property themselves. A period townhouse is always the preferred. And the new build stock tends to go down the lettings route quite often or, or just short-term ownership, and they flip them a little bit quicker. People move on, they outgrow the one bed, they move to a two. 
uh, and then eventually move into a, a house themselves further on. So I'd say typically our central London property is probably more angled towards the ownership, but it's probably changing and it's going to be changing over the next few years, I'm sure, much quicker than we've ever seen before. Do you want to talk about trends or we, shall we play the word association game? Where I say a word and you say the first word that comes to mind. Does that sound like fun? Interesting. <laughs> okay, All right, I'm gonna we're gonna try that. We'll see how this goes. When I say football, you say Chelsea. Chelsea? Oh. We have a Chelsea fan, okay. <laughs> okay, so I'm not a fan, but Liverpool comes to mind because that's so okay. sports. All right, all right, we'll go with that. So you said earlier, university, it's one of the big draws to the London market, university. So when I say university, what do you think of first? Fun. 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 Yeah. <laughs> I would have said Oxford, but um, that's me being biased to where I, I was. But I that's think, me being honest. Yeah. But I, I think in terms of London, uni universities is like the central. There's so much, so many. I mean, my daughter went to uh, St. Andrews and I think of Oxford and I think of Cambridge and I think of the London School of Economics. So yeah. I'm a little it's, it's funny when Laura says fun. <laughs> <laughs> but OK, we'll keep it. All right. British car. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm a big F1 fan and you guys are still making great cars, great racing cars, great luxury cars. So when I say British car. I drive an Austin Healey. I love British cars. Talk to me about British cars. Over to you. It's got to be an Aston Martin. I think it's got to be the Aston Martin. James Bond is iconic. And when you suddenly consider James Bond driving in his silver or dark gray Aston Martin in whichever film you pick, it's iconic. And we're always going to see that Sean Connery or Pierce Brosnan face on walls all over london and uh it's it's always going to be a british icon so i'd say the aston martin's got to be up there okay you, how about you laura i mean you really want to talk to me about cars yeah <laughs> sure that's <laughs> the first word that comes to your mind i was going to say classic <laughs> um you know yeah let's not talk about cars i was hoping <laughs> range rover would enter the car that's what i was thinking i was thinking range rover yeah. Wow. Okay. Okay. We'll go with that. I'll give you. I'll, I'll give you a softball or Hyde Park. Give me an image. So, I mean, obviously, I think of my market. Um, I think great value for money. I think breath of fresh air. Great place to live. Okay. Um, I want one. I want one word. This is a word association game. Give me one hot Hyde Park image. Running. Running. I'd go, running. I'd go peaceful. Yeah. I love it. Cycle through every morning and I run through it every other weekend. And when I come to New York, I'm going to run through Central Park. So that's what I look forward to when I'm on a trip, going and seeing something, the breath of fresh air, running. Awesome. Yeah. Definitely a place for mindfulness. It's so nice having an office literally within about two minutes walk of Hyde Park. If you really do want to just get out and have a wonder soak in some green in the midst of you know the madness of the city it's it's a pretty amazing space all right i'm gonna i'm gonna add roberto to this one i'm gonna say food food give me it give me give me some food notting hill it's two words 
I was, I was thinking diversity actually with London. That's just the most amazing thing about London. It doesn't matter what you fancy. There's always options and uh, yeah, diversity. So that old saw, oh, British food is bland. That's 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 a 1980s concept, Some right? We're past. way past that, right? Have you? Uh, I take it you guys have had a proper roast. I'm not talking a bit of meat and a Yorkshire pudding and some roast potatoes. I'm saying you've got it all. About nine, ten different uh, varieties of food and condiments, etc., on your plate at once. That's what you need. Serve yourself up a Sunday roast this weekend. That, so that's the new hot thing for when I think of food in London. You're thinking diversity and roast in particular is trending. Oh, there, there are people reinventing it across London. If you go to some parts, uh, typically northeast London, Shoreditch area, actually, reinvent the roast. It's like a pancake Yorkshire pudding with everything rolled into it like a burrito as such. So it's not just a simple plate of food. It's You can change it up. You know, right. when I think, think of think of England cuisine, I always think about Brad Pitt. He talks about being on the uh, on the set of Snatch. He said we used to eat potato sandwiches. <laughs> He's like starch on a starch. No, <laughs> I think they had a limited budget. <clears throat> Poor Brad Pitt. <laughs> what What about what? This is a two, this is a hyphenated word. Happy hour. Where do you go? Pub, pub, British pub. Nothing beats it. Any pub, any pub, any. It's always good. Wherever you are. Cocktails, two for one. See, I wanted to die. I, that was going to be my next word. Pub culture. So let's let's go more than one word into this. I mean, is pub culture still a thing? And when you say pub, a lot of Americans don't know what that means. I mean, they're like, well, yeah, okay, a bar. We have bars. They have pubs. We have bars. Same thing, right? No? Yes? What is, what is pub culture? There's something different to where you, a public house is where it stems from. So this was a place where people would just come sit, chill, have a beer, sticky floor, dark wood tables, old fashioned beer pumps. It's, it's just the essence of it. The slight musky smell you get when you walk in, the warmth, and maybe there's a fire in the, the side. log fire. Yeah. The comfy old chairs. Yeah. It's like a living so room. Living room with a barmaid or barman. It worked perfectly. So I think what that's a really fascinating juxtaposition with what Night Frank is all about. We're talking about the wealth report. We're talking about new development. We're taking about what's old is new, the powerhouse, Battersea Barracks. And, you know, so you have, you know, the worldwide center of like the financial markets uh, with, with, with all respect to Wall Street, Roberto, um, and, uh, architecture, you know, and, uh, diversity of food. And then you talk to me about pub culture and sticky floors. And I think, wait a minute, wait a minute. You know, how do I, how do I square sticky floor pub culture with this, um, progressive vision of the new London market? Just to think of character. Yeah. London has so much character and it's it's such a global city. Uh, I deal with individuals from every corner of the globe every day. And for me, it's always understanding, OK, right. A, a buyer will come to me and they'll say, Ed, look, I'm from here. This is what I really like to do. I like to be out. I want safety. I want a nice, quiet neighborhood. I know exactly that they should be looking towards Fulham, Chelsea, Notting Hill, Kensington. Someone says I want something vibrant, a bit more edgy. I want to go a bit further. I want to uh, 
uh, try loads of different bars, eat interesting foods. I might say, look, maybe we'll put you towards northeast London. We'll start looking into those areas. Um, but London's so connected. So we've seen a recent in, uh, kind of a big investment into everything off what's called the Elizabeth Line, which is our latest um, underground network, which runs from Heathrow all the way through to Canary Wharf. Uh, 45 minutes end to end. Anything along that line, things are booming because people can be anywhere in about eight minutes. So these are becoming hubs for people around these stations. And we'll, we'll continue to see that, I think, over the coming years. So commuting, work from home, has that affected your marketplace? Uh, it's an interesting one. From a commercial standpoint, we anticipate way more people needing office space and expanding their footprint. So we're going to obviously see people then need to move back into London, what we've typically called or, or captioned the boomerang buyer. They left London during COVID, needing more space. After the pandemic, they've come back, they've purchased a small as, as I mentioned earlier, Pierre de Terre, and they've got their one or two bed functional property in the heart of London, so they can commute on those uh, few days a week. But uh, we're seeing that people want and businesses want to be in the office more often. They want face-to-face -face time. Nothing beats that, and, and nothing ever will, especially in this uh, day and age where we've got AI. I think face-to-face -face interaction always wins. So can I ask you something? Like, so... In Manhattan, on the weekends and things like that, people need, I think, and if you live in New York intensively, you almost need a another place to go. We have a house in Southampton. There are people who have houses in Connecticut, people who have houses up in the Hudson Valley, things like that. Where do people in London go that's an hour and a half, hour, hour and a half, two hours away from the city that they can go every weekend, but, you know, they'll spend their holidays there. And we're perhaps during COVID, they just kind of went there. Mm. Yeah, there, there are some trends. I think um, it, sometimes it depends on which part of London you live in as well, because you want easy access in and out sure. of the city. Um, but, you know, really popular locations for, for the area I'm working in, just north of the park. You know, you've got straight out on the A40 there, you can get out to the Cotswolds, Oxfordshire. Um, and even, you know, if you're sort of West London, you're going to be going out on the M4, M3 there down to the southwest. Um, so Dorset, Somerset, Bath, Devon perhaps even Cornwall, if you're willing to go a step further. Um, but, you know, we're speaking with people all the time who are coming in to London from their country properties. And it tends to be, you know, it, it's probably going to be, on, be beyond those home counties just surrounding London. It's probably going to be out from, you know, so Oxfordshire, Gloucestershire, and then the southwest, as you see. just How, long, there in how long would it take to go to the coast directly south or to go to Dover? Oh, like, how, long, how far? Hour and a half. That's down not bad. Down, down to the south. You could be down in Eastbourne quite comfortably an hour and a half on a good run. But pe people do commute quite easily to London. There, The average commute, I think, in the UK is about an hour and 40 for the average person. So you could be within the average if you're commuting from somewhere like Eastbourne. How, well, talk to me about the economics. So if I if I work in London at the and I have a second home out in Eastbourne, what does the Eastbourne market look like? Is that the million dollar average, or is it a two million dollar average? No, oh, you you probably pick up. A, I'm no expert on Eastbourne, but I know a few areas around there. But you probably get a four or five bedroom house for about one point four, okay. uh, one point four million, mm. and you could be looking at a much smaller footprint in. Uh, Wimbledon or Fulham at 1.4 million for a, a, a three-bedroom, 1,200 square foot property, maybe 1,400 if you're lucky. Okay. 
And uh, how much uh, will land? So when Roberto goes out to Southampton or I come out to New Canaan, one hour outside of Manhattan, um, you know, we've got a lot of uh, houses on one acre. Uh, we've got them on two acres, four acres, but uh, a lot of one acre properties. Uh, how much land is enough land for these second homes? Yeah, I think people do want their country home to provide them with that sense of green space that they're not getting in London. Because just you know, as I'd mentioned, if you're in, say, Wimbledon and you're picking up a three, four bedroom terraced house, you'll typically have, you know, a smallish rectangular garden at the back. Um, surrounded by your fences and then you're peering over your neighbors either side and behind you so um it's pretty tight living in comparison um but yeah i mean it, it completely varies it's if you're in a rural village you could have a number of acres around you um but eastbourne is a town so you know you, you're going to be up against a few other people um next to you it's just completely varies can i ask you where's surrey Sorry, just south of London. So if you were to go directly south for about 45 minutes, just the Surrey Hills is probably actually a prime example of where a lot of people will actually buy if they live in South London. If, they're, if they've got the, the wealth to purchase a potentially three, four, five million, the Surrey Hills is a great example. Yeah, if you just, yeah, you got it perfectly. Um, good, that is exactly good. where people will buy. I, I read that Surrey East Road is now the most expensive road. Is that is that there? Probably up there with the with the Wentworth Estate, which is just uh, just along from Surrey, further around west, um, where you've got one of the most uh, exceptional golf courses in, in the kind of close proximity to London. Um, but typically, your houses there, they're, they're mansions, they're coveted mansions that uh, everyone loves to see. So I might live in Surrey with a small garden behind my house, but I'll have I'll be it'll be a town surrounded by these fields and rolling hills and countryside. And that's where I get my sense of green space and I can I can go running on the hills. Um, but I may only maintain a quarter acre property. Right. Is that what I mean? Yeah. yeah. Exactly. You're sitting in Greenbelt land there and national parks around you. So um, it's, it's just a really beautiful environment to be living in. Well, that's one thing that the UK definitely benefits from is we mentioned planning policies earlier. We're very strict. So areas of natural beauty, green belts, as Laura said, those areas are so protected that you're not going to suddenly see a new build skyscraper go up on, on that land. It's it's protected for perpetuity. So we'll often see people move towards those regions, a bit like our, our parks in London. Where do you go when you go out? When you get out of London, where do you go? all over um you know there's just so much there's just so much to discover in the uk and i think so many people who come into london to the uk stick to their few days in london and yet there's just so much history across the whole country and so many beautiful parts but personally i love going down to the southwest i went to university in exeter which is in devon which is just if you pull over a little bit towards the west a bit further um, you're sort of heading down there towards cornwall and you've got some stunning beaches whether you're in Salcombe, where you've got beautiful marinas and um and estuaries or if it just we're just here yeah so and then north of that you've got amazing surfing beaches um so you know it's 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 stunning you've got some beautiful national parks down there as well so there you know thinking about the pub culture the pub culture runs like in the dna of people from england there's a simplicity to that which i find interesting like you go into the pub you ask for a pint and you ask, can i get a pint of and they're like it's whatever we're serving. 
Is it still, is it still that? It's like you, you get what they're serving and that's it? No, I think the emergence no. of these beers, <laughs> IPAs are, are all the rage now. So um, selection is very important now. Okay. Usually, usually. Okay. So what, what, so what is... than you think, Roberto. What's that? We're, I think we're fussier than you think. Okay. No, I think you're a little fussy. <laughs> <laughs> um, so why London over Paris or New York? It's going to come down to probably education. Um, London, the UK has always been seen as that educational hub. Um, some of the best universities are considered to be in the UK. So I think people will always flood here. Um, and then they'll remain. They they hear about it being so great, and then they they remain here. Like I, I love Paris. I think it's an absolutely gorgeous city. Um, but there are parts of London that a lot of Parisians say remind them of home, and they come over here. They like the Victorian mansion blocks that we have, nice red bricks with small little balconies you can just about hold a cup of tea on. Um, and then New York, there are parts, little neighbourhoods that resemble that that um, culture, the, the way the buildings interact with people. So. A lot of people will will say, "Oh, there's a there's a bit of New York in London, or there's a bit of Paris here." We're we're so we're so entwined with the with the rest of the world. I'm a huge fan of both cities you mentioned there, New York and Paris. But I think you know London's just such an open city, liberal, diverse, and I think people really feel that they can be themselves here. Um, so you know, it's it remains so popular for so many reasons. Where are if we? In, had, where are we in the cycle of right now in suburban uh, in the suburbs of New York? There's too little inventory, and that seems to be a problem across the United States. Um, where are we in, on the inventory picture? And let's not paint it with one brush. Talk to me about London versus the suburbs. Talk to me about the high end versus, say, the middle tier. Uh, how, how's the inventory right now? No, for sure. Um, as we've come in, I mean, putting some context on it, last year was one of the most challenging markets I've worked in in 15 years in London. And I think that, you know, coming into some optimism at the start of 2024 has been interesting because we've seen a 15% increase year on year compared to January last year um, on market appraisals, which is where we go in pitching for new properties. Um, and actually, whilst we haven't necessarily seen that come through in instructions yet. I think sellers are still sitting on the fence a little bit um, and probably spring will be the season. So probably March, April will be the time when they actually pull the trigger and bring those properties to the market. Um, but, you know, high end, you're sort of saying across the sectors um, in terms of super prime, there are actually some fantastic properties out there on the market. But I think I mentioned before about the alignment of expectations. Um, so whilst there were 170 sales in London last year at over 10 million, um, I think that there are still some sellers who are really still hoping to achieve prices that they probably would have seen back in the peak around 2014, 2015. Um, and they are sort of waiting. And actually where you see price reductions of around 10, if, if a seller is really brave, 15, 20 percent, they are going to get absolutely flooded with interest from buyers. But that alignment is just so important at the moment. We'd have a far more buoyant market if sellers could get on board because there, there are some great properties out there, but there's a few sitting around because the, the alignment's just not there on expectations. What do you think? What force do you think is going like here? Our inventory has been so low because interest rates are so high. The same disparity in 
and bid ask. So a lot of properties have not come on the market. So our inventory is tremendously tight. Our demand also is going is beginning to open up because the interest rates are coming down because there's a lot of people yeah. who are sitting on the sidelines. So do you feel, I mean, I guess the for us, it's going to be deal volume. Our deal volume is down 27% last year and we're expecting the deal volume to increase. It's not going to now because the interest rates are now going to be a little bit more moderate in their decrease than what was anticipated just a month ago. It's not going to be great. It's not going to be a spike, but we're anticipating a lot of activity. But And then the question is, will the demand outside outstrip the supply or vice versa? But I think all of them will be moving in that direction. I guess that's the same there. Yeah, it is exactly the same as what you're just saying. And I think you know, buyers are kind of settling into a new mortgage norm. Um, we're accepting that, you know, they went right up to rates, went up to six and a half percent towards the end of last year. They've come down to four and a half. We're not seeing any sign that the Bank of England are going to change those interest rates for a, a while. Um, mortgage rates have come down to four and a half and we're not seeing any sign either that they might change significantly until potentially later in the year. So I think buyers are accepting. They've sat on the fence during 2023 trying to wait and see what happens. But they're frankly getting quite bored. They really want to find their long term home and they're out hunting. And the mo- like I just said, the moment those prices come down a little bit on things which have been sitting around on the market, buyers are flocking to it. I mean, just after Christmas, we'd put something under offer just before Christmas when a price came down. Um, another buyer came along and offered higher, having seen it just before it went under offer. Um, we call that gazumping over here. Uh, I think, you know, that's that's happening on a few things at the moment, which is a real sign to us that, mar- that the market actually may have bottomed out because buyers are starting to outbid each other. And I do think it's because they're just really quite fed up with not not moving. Yeah. yeah. On, on that, actually, it's, it's really interesting. So from, from the new homes perspective, we obviously we might cover a stack of units, as we call it, where we've got the first, second, third, all the way up to 10th floor. And it's the same unit. It might be the same one bedroom, for argument's sake. But they're all slightly different, uh, differently priced. It gets a bit more expensive the higher you go up because of views. Let's say last year we had all 10 sat on the market. This year we've already seen like an 8% increase in number of registrations, buyers looking for product. Uh, and we've said, right, OK, actually, look, last year we may have only sold the 8th or ninth floor. This year we're now seeing people go, oh, right. I want the 10th. Oh, that's gone. I was looking at the 7th end of last year. Oh, that one's also gone. So we're starting to see buyers, okay, if you're not quit, you're going to miss out because other people are now just starting to shake off New Year. They've rubbed their eyes. They've gone, right, okay, what's the plan for 2024? Oh, it's buy a property. And suddenly we're realizing, oh, we're late to the mark. We've missed the boat on that one. We're going to have to go for a secondary area. We're going to have to make a compromise here. So if people are a little bit slow and they aren't quick at speaking to their mortgage broker or their finance team, they need to really get a move on and just make sure that they're in that position to press go. Otherwise, they will miss out. And that is exactly what happened on that property with the gazumping. Wow. Gazumping. I love that. Um, Let's talk about cash buyers. We're seeing... Uh, across the United States, I think we could say that it's about one third. But in the New York market, we're seeing about two thirds of all deals are cash deals. In some markets, uh, hot markets, such as Palm Beach, we're seeing as much as 90%. Uh, we're seeing um, 
and, and generally in the hot markets of eastern uh, southeastern Florida. So where are we in terms of cash buyers since you mentioned interest rates being a factor and or, and you also mentioned people uh, who may have sat on the sidelines in 2023 entering the this spring market finding that it's more competitive than they thought. How important is it and is it a function of being in competition with others or is it a function of being um, disappointed by the interest rates of four and a half? Well, I think it's uh, you're in a great position if you're a cash buyer. Uh, in the second hand market, I'm sure Laurel Greet, it's, it's a great position to be in when you're competing against other buyers. Uh, from the new homes perspective, it really depends on how finance is done. So depending on whether developers leverage themselves will depend on whether they take that as position. But it means you can transact quicker, which I'm sure Laura will say is a really great way to, to enter into negotiation, being cash part. Is it one third? Is it two thirds like New York? Oh, it's hard to say. But it's changed quite a lot. Yeah. I mean, if you look at the last quarter of Q3 with those six and a half percent interest rates, um, we were not really selling to mortgage buyers at that point in time. And actually those cash buyers who were out in that period pr probably bought quite well yeah. in that time. Um, but I'd say it's balancing out. It's, I mean, I can only say from experience in the office that I'm working in um, without having stats in front of me, probably 50-50 at the moment. Yeah, it's starting to get to a point where people realise actually that there's still some value in taking out uh, a mortgage, taking out a financial loan. It, it works for them at the moment. Some people uh, are actually now pushing to that, even if they are cash rich. I've, I've got a, a few clients at the moment who have decided to take on finance just because of certain future taxes they might incur, um, but obviously cater to the, to the right person. That's particularly prevalent as well, where parents are buying for their children. First-time buyers are not particularly in the market at the moment with these interest rates, and so where parents are helping, they are future planning as well in terms of tax, inheritance tax, so borrowing kind of works. Yeah. So um, we're, we're getting toward the end of our show. I want to thank our sponsor, Grace Farms. I want to thank Knight Frank. I want to remind everybody that the Wealth Report's coming out in about a month. We're very excited about that. And I want to ask you both for sort of advice for those entering the London market and predictions. Well, start with why. Um, the first thing that's coming to my mind is probably almost don't think too much about it. If you want to buy crack on, go with it, find your dream home. I mean, London has remained incredibly resilient during so many challenges that we've faced over the last few years. Um, get to know your agents really well and make sure they know what you're looking for. Um, because I think, you know, people want to be first to hear about things. So if you're in touch with us, we'll know and we will be picking up the phone to you straight away. Literally, words out my mouth. I was gonna say, be in touch, communicate, um, you'll see so many properties in London, especially uh, some of the higher end stuff, some of the more sought after properties, they'll go off market. We've got incredible buying agent arm, the, the buying solution, who will often source property off market. But without contact with a, a broker or an agent like Laura and I, it's going to be so hard for you to find the right thing. We're here to educate the buyers. So the more you speak to us, the more you give us, the more we can help you find the right deal for you, the right property in the right location where you actually wish to remain rather than upping and leaving in five years time it's, it's a home to stay um but yeah certainly it's just be educated be in touch and yeah be ready to move don't sit around twiddling your thumbs so i'll i'll uh, i'll let roberto get the last word but what i've learned in the episode what i've heard 
is that London is an incredibly stable market with expectations of 3% growth every year for the next five years that buyers are starting to um, realize that and those that were sitting on the sidelines are now entering the market and you're seeing a period of increased demand. I'm hearing that there's plenty of options still available. We looked at the map of new development all around the Hyde Park market. We talked about the suburban market also with opportunities. Um, so while there's decent amount of inventory, I guess what I'm hearing from you is um, that, and basically I'm hearing about a market that is benefiting from a flight to safety in a market where we're seeing a lot of turbul uh, turbulence around the world and uh, anxiety and a presidential election we're seeing a lot of investment coming into London and you're saying it's a stable market and it's benefiting from that dynamic. And the best thing I can do is develop a relationship with a London market expert and um, and get into the market this spring. Is that pretty much what I'm hearing? Beat the rush. I think you're, you're buying Beat on the that. rush. Beat the rush. What do you hear, Roberto? I can't. I, I'm just stunned by how how similar the markets are behaving between new york and london right now it's unbelievable i mean it's an election year it's an inventory situation it's a demand situation it's interest rates it's it's so similar at this point where it hasn't been really that much in the past so um i feel like i understand the marketplace there um not that i know the property i'll be in touch once i do a couple more once i do a couple more deals here yeah Always welcome. <laughs> we'll speak soon, Roberto, I'm sure. <laughs> Indeed. Thank you, Thank you guys so much. We want Thank to do you. this again. We want to check in with you after the spring market and find out how it went. But thank you very much. This was a, an incredibly uh, informational show. I mean, I learned so much. And uh, wow, I'm excited uh, to come on over and check it out. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Burrows and Burbs. We hope we've given you some strategies you can apply in your own real estate journey. Until we talk again, have a wonderful week.